There's a book that's written called The Idea of a University. It's by a guy named John, he ended up being a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church, John Cardinal Newman. And a number of years ago, when I was his pastor, I gave a copy of that book, or I think I did, to, uh, to the vice president of Indiana University. And I told him he should read it. And one of the things that I wanted him to read was Cardinal Newman saying that uh, it's impossible for higher education to be educational or higher if it despises the queen of the sciences, which is theology. And so the, one of the things the book argues in an extensive way is that when you remove theology from education, from the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, that you no longer pursue knowledge and wisdom. And if we look at the academy today, it, it, this is perfectly illustrated. Where the academy today is the pursuit of ideology and the pursuit of money, the pursuit of uh, a vocational education allow you to make money when you get out. It's the pursuit of a bunch of things. It certainly is not the pursuit of the knowledge of God. It certainly is not permeated with the sine qua non of knowing God, which is the fear of God. Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and yet higher education today is the consistent killing of the fear of God. Right? Right? And so look back centuries ago when the Christian church gave itself to creating universities because we believed in a God who is known, all right? We believe in a God who is the maker of everything we see. In him we live and move and have our being. You remember that's what the Apostle Paul said in the Areopagus in Athens. In him we live and move and have our being. The Christian church planted all these churches and then very quickly, you know the old statement, which is that institutions quickly become the very thing they were founded to oppose. All right? And so these universities began to decay as soon as they were created. And one of the things that universities began to do with good intentions is they began to have sports. And originally, the purpose of sports was what? Well, it was to teach us that, we'll for, that we're full orb, that we're holistic, that we are not disembodied brains. At least most of us aren't. Full of you, a few of you are holdouts. But <laughs> and we look back at Athens and Greek culture, and we see them taking the mind and the body seriously. And so schools began to have sports, and they began to give an outlet physically to the students. And of course, the goal was that the students would learn self-discipline, and that the passions <laughs> would be disciplined. Well, you remember how institutions become the very thing they were created to oppose. And isn't this true of sports today? Where instead of sports disciplining the passions, sports sort of enable. <laughs> you know, you think about these egotistical celebrations in the end zone. And you know as you look at it, despite the fact that every individual doing it is not perfectly evil. You know, they're just doing what they've seen everybody else do. They think it's their right. You know, if they score a touchdown, you know, the whole team needs you to do it. And so they go into this celebration of themselves. There's no discipline of their passions. And then you think about the corruption of the university by sports. Uh -huh. And you think about how instead of sports being an ancillary, it's the tail that wags the dog today. And it would be hard to understand how m many of these schools could possibly raise the money they need to keep going without sports. 
And so today what you have is, instead of the president of the university making the most money, either the basketball coach or the football coach, certainly not the wrestling coach. (laughs) They make, I guess, five times the amount, maybe ten times the amount. I'm sure somebody here knows. Even if it's five, that's a huge amount. And then we get into steroids and other drugs. And if you've been following the Lance Armstrong thing, even the people that were his dearest friends are now beginning to say exactly what bike racing is. And so what ends up happening is something that was created to subdue the passions and to teach self-discipline is now a huge issue of egotism and naked profit and materialism, and it ends up being the engine that drives the modern university. And, and then, from the time they're little, these kids have their fathers driving them to games on Sunday morning. <laughs> They're both true. They drive them. And they drive them to games on Sunday morning. The amount of money it costs to be Duke Cutter's soccer, I put it conservatively, it's somewhere between $750 and $1,000 a year. Okay? And that's for one child. Now, I have to admit, that's at the point where you travel. Wait, John and John's going to correct me. Go ahead. Oh, that's the white team. So the red team, how much? So 2,000 to 3? 1,500 to 2? Okay, 1,500 to 2 if you're on the red team. And the difference between being on the red and the white is that the people on the white team often are Christians and don't play on Sunday, so they miss half the games. Okay. Okay, so you look at the drugs, you look at the money, you look at the egotism, and then it spreads into the NFL. And pretty soon it's possible for most men in the, in the, in the United States of America to, to, to forget that they have souls. Because who needs a soul when you have the NFL? Remember? I have become comfortably numb. You all know that song? Pink Floyd? Now listen, nobody's offended right now. I don't think even Jeff is, are you? No, he's not offended. So if Jeff isn't, nobody is, right? Is anybody offended? I'd like to talk to you afterwards and hear what your offense is. Okay, nobody's offended. All right. So Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And remember Rita's word, lo, I will be with you. Rita is a dear friend of mine who died a number of years ago, and she said the Lord promised to lo be with us, not I. So she would never fly. Lo, I will be with you. To the ends of the earth. And so he founded the church. And there were 12 apostles. Not one. Peter had the biggest mouth. But he was not the only apostle. And after 1,500 years, can you imagine that we had corrupted it? And that it had become the very opposite thing that it had been created to be. 
And you say, well, no, this is not a human institution. This is a divine institution founded by Christ. And he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I say, well, do you remember how Jesus said when he was on earth, he said to the religious leaders of his time, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Scripture says, honor your father and mother, but you say that whatever you dedicate to the church can't help your father and mother because it's Corbin. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And so what had happened was the religious leaders of the true church at that time, which was the Jews, they had surrounded the word of God with all kinds of ancillary sort of fences and gates and just a whole hullabaloo. And that hullabaloo had become the important thing to them, such that the boundaries God had set were secondary, and the boundaries that the whole hullabaloo set were primary. And so they said that if you declare something Corbin that is dedicated to the church, then you don't have to honor your father and mother. You don't have to provide for them in their old age because, after all, you're especially holy. You have dedicated your money to the church. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And they said, but, but the priest said it was right. The priest said if it's Corbin, I don't have to help my parents. Jesus said, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. So what had happened was that the Jews, their religious leaders, had consciously set up a scheme that allowed them to tell the people what was right and wrong. As a matter of fact, it made them to be so important that nobody could take a step without giving an account to them. And so, for instance, on the Lord's Day, you had this system where you'd spread lines out from your house to extend how far you could walk on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, I should say. All right? So that the number of steps they said you could take, you could subvert their rules by taking a string and running it way down the block so that you would not be considered taking your first step on the Sabbath until you stepped out from under that string way down the block. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. All right? Jesus said, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. He also said this to them. What's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to give men faith in Christ so that they may be born again and dwell with God eternally. It's to solve our sin. And Jesus looked at the religious leaders of his time and he said to them, uh, you go across heaven and earth to make a single convert and then you turn him into twice the son of hell you are yourselves. And that's what Jesus said to the religious leaders of the true church at his time. Now I could keep going. He said many things like that. And it was the true church. He wasn't talking to the Mormons or the Essenes. And now we move forward 1,500 years, and what we find is that the church, 1,500 years later, was exactly what the church was at the time of Ezekiel, of Jeremiah, of Malachi, of Amos. It was exactly the same as it was at the time of Jesus, all right, which is that it had become the very opposite of what it had been founded to be. Instead of being the source of the bread of life that leads men to heaven and finally removes the burden of sin from them, it specialized in placing the burden of sin on men. And it did it in order to monetize, what is right, monetize or monetize? monetize. Okay, so it did it in order to monetize salvation. In other words, what it was trying to do was bring money into the situation. Because if it brought money into the situation, then it could create the very pieces of architecture, the very music, and the very art 
that you worship. And then all through history, it could be known as the most sophisticated time in history when they had Michelangelo, you know, breaking his body for year after year, painting behind, you know, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And then, you know, all over the world, you could have that hand going down and that hand coming up and and everybody could just feel so smug about their taste in art. And of course, we all love that gesture of the hand going up and the hand coming down. We like to say that Christianity is the only religion in the world that has a hand coming down. And what I want to say to you is, <laughs> I've never said this before, so watch out. I want to say Christianity is not only the only religion that, doesn't have a hand, that has a hand going down, God's hand. It's also the only religion in the world that has no hand going up. None. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so what a beautiful illustration of the church at the time of the Reformation. A hand going down, a hand coming up. And, and aren't I something? So Raphael... Michelangelo. It took him a hundred years to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. A hundred years. And do you know how they rebuilt it? Everybody knew they rebuilt it through indulgences. And you say, what is an indulgence? And I say, well, an indulgence is selling the treasury of righteousness, of holiness, of merit that the church owns for money such that people want to buy it to get rid of their sins, the penalty of their sins and the penalty of the sins of their loved ones, particularly the dead. And so the saying that Tetzel, who was sort of the one that was best known because he was the best salesman, all right, the saying that he used was, look, the minute you put a coin into the box, the soul springs free. And so here these people had all their loved ones in purgatory because they knew their loved ones weren't good enough to merit being in heaven. And so they were working out getting holy in purgatory after death. You know what Joyce Huck told me? Joyce Huck said before she went to sleep growing up Roman Catholic, she said that she would pick the prayer that had the most um, indulgences attached to it so that she could help her relatives escape purgatory when she was a little girl growing up. Doesn't surprise you that Joyce would do that, does it? And all of this all of it is permeated with financial trans- transactions. Okay? And this is the state of the church in 1500. Or 1415. And do you know something? Do you know that... Um, There's no question that the thing that causes the greatest intensity of fear in me when I preach is if I ever mention the Roman Catholic Church. And it starts with my wife. And my wife always supports godliness in me but not so much if I preach about Roman Catholicism because she's just thinking of all of you who have one hand in the Roman Catholic Church and one hand in the true church. And she just wants to bring you along by love so that you finally realize that you better get your foot on the dock or your foot in the boat because you can't have it both ways. And she's just like a woman. (laughs) And she just wants them to end up in the drink. 
without anybody ever warning them that it's coming. Now, of course, she were here, she'd say, that's not true. And you're right, it's not true. But she really believes that relationships are the thing that will get doctrine down the gullet. And so if we just keep loving you and shut up about Roman Catholicism, somehow by osmosis, sooner or later, you'll realize the truth. And there's something to be said for that, you know. After all, if you want people to eat cauliflower, it helps to put cheese on it. (laughs) You know? And a little hint, broccoli and Worcestershire sauce. And so here we are, postmoderns. Lucas' sermon last week was so helpful. Here we all are, POMO. You know, you don't want to dignify what we are with that many syllables. You know, we're POMO. You know, we're all POMO. Emo POMO. Yeah. <laughs> Screamo emo POMO. My mama don't love me. And so we can't bear even having the preacher speak about the Reformation. Now, it used to be in the time of Jesus that the preachers could talk about the Reformation. That was fine, because you remember Jesus said that you lay garlands on the tombs of the dead prophets. But today, we can't even have somebody lay a garland on the tomb of the dead prophets, you know, because it just is too uncomfortable, you know? We don't believe in prophets. And so if you're going to allow me to be prophetic in a Reformed Presbyterian church, the only way to do it is to go back 500 years, 495, and talk about the Roman Catholic Church back then. And we all know it's not the same church today. Unless, of course, you go south of the border. (laughs) And then you see signs on all the doors that say, if you're a Protestant, get out of here. And you see women crawling on their knees up the steps of the cathedral in La Ciudad de Mexico, on their knees. I've seen it. And then you think, well, yeah, but not in the enlightened United States. And I say, yeah, the United States is such an enlightened Roman Catholic church that it just has court cases all over the country. And you say, okay, go ahead, talk about Roman Catholicism, but don't, don't, please don't talk about Protestant churches. Don't talk about Tim Keller. I just can't abide it. Do you think you're better? Can't you just imagine how often they said that to Jeremiah? (laughs) Jeremiah, you have delusions of grandeur. You're such an egotist. You're so arrogant. And Jeremiah says, no. And they say, don't you have another word? Bad. No bad, no bad, no bad. Isn't that a good summary of Jeremiah? (laughs) Who needs Eeyore? You know, it really doesn't matter that much if the university goes bad and you have to start another one. And it really is not that terrible if the Colts lose Peyton Manning. And it's really not that horrible if Arsenal goes into a funk for 10 years. And there are worse things than having your football team, the laughter of, what, the whole country? Certainly the Midwest. 
But when you have the church of Jesus Christ selling salvation, we have a problem. We have a problem. And so the Reformation took that problem, the monetizing of a soul, of all souls, and it blew it to smithereens. And it restored that a man is justified before God by faith alone. And that does really make all the difference. Now, I'm going to say something about the Roman Catholic Church before I move on. One of the reasons that we really don't like anybody to be critical about the Roman Catholic Church is that they are co-belligerents with us today. The world has gone cruelly pagan on us in the last 50 years. Cruelly pagan. The world seems to have no heart to be merciless now. All right? Merciless towards old, merciless towards young, merciless towards the feeble, and merciless towards the unborn, and merciless towards people tempted by homosexuality and adultery and fornication. Merciless, cruel, merciless. And Roman Catholics are next to us, protesting the slaughter of the unborn, protesting the normalization of sodomy, protesting feminism, which has taken over leadership across the Western world, saying, no, we won't have woman priests. And so they're co-belligerents in so many things, and they actually believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, unlike the Mormons, who are also co-belligerents with us, but are a nasty sect, cult, all right? You read about Joseph Smith, <laughs> okay? And so we have sympathy, and the Roman Catholics are hated in the Western world. And so we're sympathetic to them because the reason they're hated is the very places where they are faithful to the true God. They do fear God. So listen, there are many reasons why today we don't want anybody saying anything against people that are a great encouragement to us on many levels, right? I have no argument with that. But you know... Crud creeps, creeping crud. And the crud of salvation by works that is intrinsic to Roman Catholic doctrine, it's at the heart of Roman Catholic doctrine, it's inescapable, that crud uses co-belligerency to corrupt the Protestant church. And so as I've told you before, there are a number of men prepared for ministry at Gordon-Conwell with me who are now advocates, evangelizers for Roman Catholicism. The principal one who he and his wife and I knew each other well. And his name is Scott Hahn. How many of you have heard of Scott Hahn? All right, you've heard of Scott Hahn, right? So now, let me read to you a few of the 95 theses, all right, that Luther nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Roman Catholic Church on October 31, 1517. Won't it be wonderful to celebrate the 500th anniversary? Some of us will. You know, it's coming up day after tomorrow. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Come on, you all know this. I, I repeat it all the time. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent. All of you say it. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, I'm changing a word there. It says penitence here, but you're going to think that that's just Luther calling for money. It's not. When our Lord Jesus said repent, he was calling for the entire life of a Christian to be one of repentance. The whole life. All right, number eight. 
And remember, that's the first one. Number eight, the penitential canons apply only to men who are still alive, and according to the canon themselves, none applies to the dead. Number 10, it is wrongful act due to ignorance when priests retain the canonical penalties on the dead in purgatory. Number 13, death puts an end to all the claims of the church. Even the dying are already dead to the canon laws and are no longer bound by them. Think of how this blows up the monetizing of salvation. Number 16, there seems to be the same difference between hell, purgatory, and heaven as between despair, uncertainty, and assurance. That one's so sweet. Number 21, hence, those who preach indulgences are in error when they say that a man is absolved and saved from every penalty by the Pope's indulgences. Number 24, it must therefore be the case that the major part of the people are deceived by that indiscriminate and high-sounding promise of relief from penalty. Number 27 and 28, numbers. There is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of the purgatory immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. Now listen, it can't be a straw man if he writes it, nails it to the door of the church and says, I want to debate this. It must have been what everybody knew was being said at the time, if that's how he writes it. All right, number 28, it is certainly possible that when the money clinks in the bottom of the chest, avarice and greed increase. (laughs) But when the church offers intercession, all depends in the will of God. (laughs) Oh, is that beautiful. When the church prays, it waits on God. How do you explain yourself? other than prayer and the act of the Holy Spirit. There's no explanation, is there? There's just none. (laughs) How do you explain me? I mean, (sighs) don't get me wrong. The, the, The tiny good parts of me. There's no explanation except the Holy Spirit. And we're always wanting to depend on our ability to spend money, to have money, to... You know, because then they owe it to us. We owe it to them. But you go to God in prayer. He don't owe us nothing. And we have to wait on him. Number 32, all those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation by means of letters of indulgence will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Number 35, it is not in accordance with Christian doctrines to preach and teach that those who buy off souls or purchase confessional licenses have no need to repent of their own sins. Imagine having to... Numbers 53 and 54, those are enemies of Christ and the Pope who forbid the word of God to be preached at all in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. Number 54, the word of God suffers injury if in the same sermon an equal or longer time is devoted to indulgences than to the word. You imagine this. Imagine. (laughs) Okay, okay. Let's imagine that I want a nice house. And I want it here. I want you to pay for it. And not only a nice house, I want a nice church. And I want the best artist the world has ever known to paint just willy-nilly the ceiling. (laughs) I want gold. I want a hundred years of work of the best artisans the world has ever seen to go into that church. And I want my house there. And so listen, you cannot be saved unless you buy holiness from me. And God has set it up so that I'm able to sell you the holiness you need so that you get good enough so that you can go to heaven. Now, come on, give me money. That is precisely what was going on. Precisely. It's not a fabrication. It's not an unfair statement. And everybody knew when they bought indulgences, when they put the money in the box... 
everybody knew that money was going so that the Pope would have this glorious, glorious St. Peter's rebuilt. And so you come to church, and first I preach for half an hour on indulgences. And then I decide 35, and then I go to 40, and then 45 minutes. And, and I go over to preach in, 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 you know, Joe Schmo Church. And I'm not here on a Sunday. You don't get a sermon because I'm over there preaching on indulgences. And all the money goes to the rebuilding of St. Peter's. And everybody knew it. All right, you don't think I'm right. Okay, here's another of the theses. This is numbers 82. Why does not the Pope liberate everyone from purgatory for the sake of love? A most holy thing, and because of the supreme necessity of their souls. This would be morally the best of all reasons. Meanwhile, he redeems innumerable souls for money, a most perishable thing, with which to build St. Peter's Church, a very minor purpose. Remember what happened to Stephen when he said to the Jews, God doesn't live in temples made by human hands? Ho, ho, ho. Oh, were they angry. Remember they said that you said you tear this temple down. Oh, boy. Luther really stepped in at this time. Right? I keep having to correct things on this because I typed it up wrong and it's up on the blog. Number 86. Again, since the Pope's income today is larger than combined Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, and who's three? Who? I can't hear you. Okay, yeah, all of them together. All the Walmart kids. Okay? Since the Pope's income is more than all of those people put together, since the Pope's income today, says Luther, is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, why doesn't he build this one church of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of indigent believers? <laughs> and then... Number 90, these questions are serious matters of conscience to the laity. To suppress them by force alone and not to refute them by giving reasons is to expose the church and the Pope to the ridicule of their enemies and to make Christian people unhappy. Isn't that sweet? Then 92, away then with those prophets who say to Christ's people, peace, peace where there is no peace. Who is he quoting? Who is he quoting? Jeremiah, people. That is always the way of false shepherds. They say peace, peace, where there is no peace. All right. 93, hail, hail to those prophets who say to Christ's people, the cross, the cross, where there is no cross. Number 94, Christians should be exhorted to be zealous to follow Christ, their head, through penalties, deaths, and hells. And 95, the last, and let them thus be more confident of entering heaven through many tribulations rather than through a false assurance of peace. Here's our sermon text. In Philippians 3, 7 to 10, we read this. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, now listen carefully, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. 
But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And this is the word of the Lord. And so there are three transactions that you need to understand. The first transaction is that when Adam sinned, you and I died. And we have had imputed to us the sin of Adam. And so we were born in our trespasses and sins. But David says we were conceived in our mother's womb in trespasses and sins. And so Adam's sin... It's not our sin. We never met him. Any, anybody here meet Adam? No. And yet when Adam sinned from that point on by God's decree, his sin is imputed to us and becomes our sin. And it's that way. You know what my mother used to say, but why, Mud? And she said, just because. God is pleased to have you and me impotent to do anything about our federal head, Adam. Not Eve, the man. Through that man, you, if you are a woman, young or old, you are corrupt because of that man's sin, not his wife's sin. All right? And that's how God did it. So that's the first imputation, the imputation of Adam's sin to us. And so we're born, we're conceived in sin. All right? And there is no hope for you. There's absolutely no hope for you. And if you don't know it, you better stop watching the NFL. And you better get in touch with your eternal destiny. Because your heart is desperately wicked. Imputation one. Imputation two. The imputation of our sin to Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he bore our sin. Those of us who are believers. It isn't his sin. He is the Lamb of God, spotless, blameless. He never, ever, ever sinned in his thoughts, let alone his actions. He never failed to do exactly what was righteous. But when he went to the cross, he bore the sins of the world. The imputation of Adam's sin to us, the imputation of our sin to our Savior. And then number three, the imputation of his perfect righteousness to us. Okay? And listen, it is not something that we get by looking at him and being so inspired by him. So that we begin to live right. We've all tried that, right? Raise your hand. You've tried that, right? Doesn't work, does it? It's utterly hopeless. And that is that little cage that the mice run. And it never stops. And that's the whole point of it. It never stops. And every time you go around, you have to put a coin into the box. And then the Sistine Chapel is, is, is a tourist attraction. You know, there's no hope of you looking at Jesus and being inspired so that you are good enough for God. He is inspiring, but it is his righteousness which is credited to our account and which declares in the court of God's holiness, ollie ollie and free to his people. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not our righteousness. We can never, I don't care how long you gaze at the, what do they call it, uh, the beatific vision or whatever you want to call it. I don't care how long that goes on. You will never have anything like the righteousness that you require to stand in the presence of a holy God. You won't even be able to stand in the presence of an angel who's come from his presence. 
because that's how hopeless it is for you. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches that to be saved is for you to see the beatific vision, for you to be motivated by love, for faith and love to work together so that you get to the point where you are good enough for the presence of God. You, not the imputation of his righteousness, but your actual righteousness. And that's why they have purgatory. Because they know how many people die with no hope of being good enough for heaven. And so you go to purgatory, which is perfect in suffering. So that after a time of suffering, you're finally disciplined to the point that you can merit being in the presence of God. And it's called infusion. His righteousness is infused into us to the point where we are worthy enough to be in his presence. And that's hopeless. It's hopeless. You can't be good enough. No matter how much you love Jesus Christ, you can't be good enough. It must be, look here, it says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Can it be clearer than that? And that's the Reformation. The conflict between the infusion through Christ of, of, of love, charity, of faith and such, and, and the beatific vision in Jesus and, and all of this such, that we are able to have a righteousness of our own derived from the law. But the Bible says that the hope of the Christian is not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But what? But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know what I love is I love it when a man gets called out. I love it when men's adultery becomes queer. I love it when they go bankrupt. I love it when their wife dies. I love it when, when they get sick and are on the back in a bed of a hospital for the first time in their life because finally those men look at themselves and take stock and see that it's hopeless for them. And then you can say, there's no hope for you, is there? And they'll say, no, there's no hope for me. And you say, but do you know that Jesus died so that you could possess his righteousness, not yours, his? What? Yeah. His righteousness is what we're to trust in by faith. Not our own. No, 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 that can't be. Well, trust me, brother. Not having a righteousness of my own by the law, but the righteousness of God that is by faith. And then you hear Jesus say, Abba, Father. And you begin to see how you properly come to God. Nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling. And then you think, well, I can do that. I've seen babies do that. I did that when I was a baby. I can go to God with nothing in my hands. I can lift my hands up. Yeah, I can do that. I can tell him that I need him. I can tell him that he's my only hope. I can tell him his son died for me. I can tell him that I have no hope except Jesus on the cross. I can tell him that Jesus' blood and righteousness is my hope. I can do that, but it can't be that because that's too easy. I say, okay, Mr. Mr. Bigwig, lift your hand, say Abba Father and tell him. Well, I can do it. Hmm. Go on, do it. Well, th these are very, very personal things, very private things. Okay, all right. 
I'll come back tomorrow. Do it as soon as I leave. Next day you come back, did you do it? You know, the doctor says that it's not as serious as I thought it was. Listen, dear brothers and sisters, make your peace with God. Make your peace with God. Stop trying to bring something in your hands, because if you've got something in your hands, he can't pick you up. You know, you ever pick up a child with a popsicle in its hand? You're going to get all sticky. You know, God wants our hands open. God wants our hearts open. He wants our consciences completely self-defaulting. I'm going to end with this because I'm over. Listen, the only possible way to teach and to believe in infusion as opposed to imputation, all right, The only possible way to be a Roman Catholic or most Protestants today, because most Protestants actually believe you're saved by works, the only possible way to do that is that you have to do two things. You have to lower the holiness of God. And you cannot see God as he is high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. You cannot see the perfect, perfect holiness of God. And so your God will be an idol. Your God will be a reasonable grandpa who carries little lollipops in his pants for the little ones. His his greatest concern will, will be, can't we all get along? He will talk about how what matters are the intentions of the heart. He will be a pomo, emo, screamo, friendly, compliant God. And then Mormons are saved and Roman Catholics are saved and pretty soon Muslims will be saved and Stalin will be saved. And so you have to do two things. You have to pull his holiness down so that you can somehow imagine in your mind you satisfying him. And then the second thing you have to do is you have to lift yourself up. And, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because, you know, I mean, you know, right? I mean, it's, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You all know how that works. You are the Facebook generation, you know. You don't have a sincere thought in your brain because you're so busy blathering that you've lost the ability to be authentic, you would know authentic if it hit you in the face. You're so busy copying postures to each other about your feelings about this and that and the other thing that you don't have any feelings. And that's why you go around talking about passion all the time because you don't have any passion. <laughs> and so, listen, nobody here has to have explained to them how to build themselves up. <laughs> Just go back and read your Facebook posts for the last week or updates, or whatever you call them. You know? So you do two things. You pull God down, and you lift yourself up, and pretty soon, there's enough equivalency and plausible deniability and all those things that mediate and hedge and kind of, you know, that you can imagine God saying to you, I grade on a curve, and I suppose that if you're the kind of person I love, then I could love that kind of person, and And you did, after all, brush your teeth every morning and night. And that's the level that we live at. You know, we attribute as much eternal consequence to a man dropping a cigarette out of his window of his car as to a man committing sodomitic acts. As a matter of fact, I would say that dropping a cigarette out the window is actually a greater evil to us today than committing sodomitic acts. I mean, people, today, God is an idol, and we are God. That's the truth about us. And so, listen, 
take off your mask. Just take it off. Look at yourself as your wife looks at you. Because <laughs> long ago she stopped loving you. Well, she does love you, but it's not that romantic hallmark gushy stuff anymore. It's real. She knows which foot goes into the pants first. Look at yourself the way your children look at you. Look at yourself the way your elders look at you. And then what you'll see is there is absolutely no hope for you. There's no hope because they're right. The problem with people isn't that they don't understand you. (laughs) The problem is that people do understand you. (laughs) And you know, God doesn't even make the mistakes they make. Because he looks on the heart. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. You can't fool him with cosmetics. And he doesn't, he's not impressed how many pounds you've taken on and off how many times. And so then, picture that he has said that those who come to him, he will never cast out. (laughs) And he knows what you're like. He actually knows what you're like. He knows it. And he says, come. Actually, I should change that. He does not say come, does he? Because God commands. He commands come. And you say, the way I am? And he says, do you think I don't know? Where can you hide from me? Go down to the bottom of Cash's ledge. And I see perfectly there. Go up on the top of North Face. Go to Mount McKinley or Denali. You go anywhere you want. You can go up and jump out of a balloon. And I see you perfectly. And you say, I can't be. You you can't see me. Do you know about the unborn child I killed? He says, I've been waiting for you to come. And you say, no, 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 no. Do you know if I had it to do again, I'd do it again? And he says, come. He says, it can't be, because I'm so filthy. And he says, yeah, but my son is righteous. My son is righteous. You say, well, listen, give me a few years, and then I think maybe a century in purgatory. And, uh, and, and do you have a pope that I can buy some merit from? And he says, what? He says, come. 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 Do you know what Jesus said at the end of his life? Jesus looked out over Jerusalem. And he said this. He said, oh, Come on, say it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You. Come on. You who stone the prophets. And he says, I'm not going to give you all of it, but he says, how often I have wanted to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would have none of it. And so it's too late. You're done. I am going to destroy this place. And that's where I'm going to end. Because I was telling somebody this last week, 
One of the lies of the modern world is that it says that the only thing that's truly righteous is motivated entirely by altruism. And that's so bogus. As if we can ever merit the kindness of God. And so they tell you that you should never, ever be motivated to do your soul work by fear. You know, Jesus is always like, come, it's too late. Come, I will consume you. Come, Jesus is always motivating us with self-interest. There's nothing wrong with coming to Jesus because you fear the wrath to come. Why, even in the book of Hebrews that was read a few minutes ago, you heard the Holy Spirit saying to you, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so I want to end with a little section from Ezekiel 38. I read this past week. This is willy-nilly a passage from Scripture. This is God speaking. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Now, how's God going to be sanctified in the eyes of the nation? Listen. Thus says the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. It will be Rwanda times a million. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself. sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. This is the God who says to you, come. And you will either come now through the righteousness of his son. Or you will work and work and work to come through your own pathetic righteousness. And he will glorify himself. <laughs> All right? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. You going to take the one less traveled? It's just that clear. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, eternal things. And we are so caught in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And, and now we're just thinking of how we'll present to other people and what we're going to eat.
And Father, we, we despise worship, and we despise humility, and we despise your glory. And we thank you that you will vindicate yourself and sanctify yourself in the presence of every eye. We thank you, Father, that we can look forward to that day and tremble as we anticipate it and that this will cause us to come to you and that you will give us rest. Father, help there not to be an unbelieving soul among us. Would you please be merciful to each of us here this morning that by faith we will rest not in our own righteousness through the works of the law, but in the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.